today's scripture reading comes from Acts 16, 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them and, all, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Kara. And thank you, Mike. Uh, Brown for leading us this morning in worship. Uh, one quick thing I want to say before we get into it. This is the one year anniversary of us being in this building, which is really, it's really an incredible thing. First off, this is a much less stressful July than it was last year, um, which is nice. But what I, what I love in celebrating this and in seeing what God has done is is the faithfulness that he's shown. You know, for those of you who know the story of how we got this property and got into this building, it was a miracle of God that we got into this property for the price that we were able to get into it. So that alone showed God's faithfulness. And then to see what God has done through it, how God has brought more people into this church, it's grown families in this church, that we've been able to launch new ministries that we couldn't have been able to do prior to being in this building. It is incredible to see how God's faithfulness is expressed itself in this congregation, and I'm just looking forward to seeing how God continues to work in that. Um, hopefully, you guys were able to get here a little early and eat popsicles, because that's how we celebrate. We eat things um, here at Arcadia. If you didn't get here early for that, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think the popsicles are here afterwards. If they're here, great. If not, I don't believe that they're here, and I'm sure Stephanie is saying, no, they're not here. Um, um, but, uh, so it's a wonderful thing. We've been here for a year and I'm excited to see how God uses this year, year after year. Um, we're going to be going through Acts chapter 16 today and there's a lot to cover. So I want to kind of just dive right into the narrative. Starting in verse one of chapter 16, it says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So I just want to make just a quick comment about this. So if you remember, what we looked at two weeks ago was something called the Jerusalem Council. It's the first major council of the church, and the main thing that they were talking about was whether or not circumcision was necessary for salvation. 
This is months and months of debate, people traveling. This is a big deal. And Paul was the main proponent of saying circumcision was not necessary for salvation. So knowing that, he meets Timothy, who is half Jewish, half Greek, and the first thing that they say he does is he circumcises. He has Timothy be circumcised, which should strike us as weird. That is, that is strange, given particularly that as they were doing that, they were delivering the very message that it was not necessary for them to be circumcised. So we should ask the very obvious question, why did Paul do that? Why would Paul go ahead and do something that he seems to have fought so, so strongly against in all the chapters leading up to this? And although it is a weird situation, the answer is actually very easy. Um, Paul did not do it because he wanted Timothy to be saved. Timothy was already saved. He was already a follower. It had nothing to do with his salvation. He didn't do it even because he believed that everybody should be circumcised. He did it because he knew the fact that he was half Jewish, half Greek, yet not circumcised, that Jews in other towns would not give him an audience. They would not even listen to the words he was saying if he wasn't circumcised. So Paul did this because of wisdom. He chose to do this. Because he knew that if he didn't do that, the conversation would have been over before it began because of the nature and the culture. Um, Just to give you a few examples of other conversation stoppers. So like if you were to show up at Steve Wheeler's house, for example, with your shirt untucked and a hat backwards, conversation is over. If you know Steve, you know that that's true. Or like Tyler Johnson, who's the lead pastor over all of the Redemption Churches. If you show up to a meeting with him, wearing anything having to do with U of A, conversation is over. Uh, also, if you walk up to me, I'll, I'll throw myself under the bus here. If you walk up to me and say, hey, have you heard the new John Mayer album? Over. <laughs> Conversation's done. It's something like that. He knew in his wisdom, it, Paul understood his audience. And for the sake of the gospel, he had Timothy do that. And so that's, that's the, the simple answer to why this, seems, this seemingly contradictory thing. One other thing to just remember in this you know, we'll ask for things. Like, we'll, we'll ask for you guys to join a small group or to serve in children's ministry or, or do other things like that. Just remember that when we ask you those things, we could be asking for more, and we don't. I'll leave that there. But anyway, so the other big important thing to see here is that this is where Timothy joins Paul. Timothy becomes Paul's kind of most devoted follower, most devoted disciple. He is with him through thick and thin Paul ends up writing actually two letters that are in the Bible to this man, Timothy. Um, this is an, it's an incredible friendship that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But they do that. They're continuing. And then starting in verse 6, it says this. And then they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, all places you are very familiar with. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by those things, ultimately, Paul has a vision of the Macedonian man calling Paul to him. Macedonia was in northern Greece, and this would be, at this point in time, the farthest, at least one of the main missionaries and main disciples that we know of has traveled. But he hears that, he goes, and he responds to the call, and he ultimately goes to what, is what we know as northern Greece, which is Macedonia. He travels to a few different places and ends up in a town called Philippi. 
Now, we'll come back to some things to note in kind of the call to Macedonia later, but ultimately, he gets to Philippi, and I'm summarizing a little bit here because we have so much to cover. Philippi was a prominent town in this area. It was a place of commerce, a very well-respected area, probably for that time, a very populated area. And they immediately go to a place of worship. They kind of go to a place of prayer by a, a riverside that's near there. And while they're speaking, a certain woman named Lydia hears them. And let me uh, share with you kind of what happens there, starting in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So just to, so you note there, so this is a wealthy woman. You know by what she's selling and all that stuff. She is a wealthy woman, probably the matriarch of her family, a very influential, probably very respected woman in the community, who was a worshiper of God, which means that at the very least she had heard of the God of the Bible and respected him, was seeking to follow him. We don't know if she was Jewish, we don't know if she was Greek, but she was at least seeking to follow God. And says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia, you'll see, she's also somebody who doesn't come in as often, but you'll see her again if you read through the book of uh, Philippians and, and other things. Paul makes mention of her. She becomes one of the main leaders in the church at Philippi at the time. And this is how she was saved. God kind of meets her at her deepest need there and ultimately brings her into the family of God along with the rest of her family. And so the rest of what I read and the rest of what we look like also takes place in Philippi. After this, or actually as this stuff was happening, um, it continues. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, starting in 16, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And this is one of my favorite parts of this story. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Paul was not moved by compassion. He was not anything. He was just annoyed. And God worked through his annoyance. I kind of wish that could be true in my life as well, for example, six in the morning, both, both my older boys are up, literally running down the hall as fast as they can to hit the wall. And I just want to say, what's happening? God worked through my annoyance, and then within the hour, it's done. That would be nice. But God works through the annoyance to ultimately set this poor girl free. From not only the oppression of evil spirits, but from the oppression of those who've been making money off of those evil spirits. The story continues in verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. I want you to note the difference between what they were actually had a problem with versus what they said they had a problem with. 
Them coming to the magistrates had nothing to do with Paul breaking Roman customs or anything like that. It was because they lost their way of making money because they were making money through oppression. It's funny how oftentimes when you really dig back what the true grievance is, it's because people are losing money. Continues in verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So as a result of this, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and as we'll learn, Luke, and some of the other people that were with them are beaten with rods and then thrown into a Philippian jail. And that brings us to what was read earlier, starting in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So we need to see it. Like, that's not how I would have probably responded to the circumstance, how most people would respond to the circumstance. They were beaten for something that was not wrong. They were unjustly beaten and then thrown into jail, and they're singing hymns to God. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, the reason he was doing this is all he was doing is basically beating the Romans to, to his inevitable conclusion. The punishment for a jailer losing the people he's in charge of is death. It was immediate death. We know this not just from outside study, but actually from the book of Acts, because we see this earlier. When Peter, who God sets free from prison, happens, the jailers were killed after it. So he is doing this, and that doesn't make it any less despairing. But well, that kind of explains the context. He knows what will happen if the, if the prisoners are gone. So he's about to do this. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You know, the, one of the things, we're going to talk more about the implications of the story, but we need to just hear this story. This is amazing. Like, if, if there was a movie of the book of Acts, I would hope that this scene is in there. Just the drama, the despair, and the hope that comes into this. The beauty of what God does through his suffering servants to bring this man, who is literally at the most darkest moment of his life, to bring light, life, and hope into this, not only this man, but into his family. 
through that simple question, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the name of Jesus. And everything changes. The deepest needs that he had were met in that moment. This is powerful. It's incredible to see the faithfulness of the saints in the midst of this too. They could have very easily seen the earthquake as an act of God to help them escape. I would have probably seen it that way. But in their wisdom and their just listening, they didn't do it. And they saved this man's life and his soul. And that's amazing. Then it continues. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And what, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. There are three takeaways that I want us to, to see in here. Two smaller takeaways and one larger takeaway. Not small in the sense that they don't matter. But one that is definitely more important and more significant that is pervasive through it. But the other two are things that I think are worth seeing in this, worth learning from. The first is to be attentive to the Spirit. Be attentive to the Holy Spirit and what He is doing and how He is guiding and living, leading our lives. It is amazing to me how often we see this in the life of Paul and the life of the other disciples, where the decisions they were made were not driven by careful planning or market research or anything else like that. It was because the Holy Spirit drove them to it. And it was because they were listening enough. If you go back to verse 6, in verse 7, the reason why they hadn't gone to Asia is because the Holy Spirit um, forbode them to speak in Asia. Well, they wanted to go to Bithynia. It says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And ultimately, they were driven somewhere else because the Holy Spirit was doing that. To be attentive to the Holy Spirit, that, that sounds so simple, but it, it's really hard. And it's hard for me. So uh, me personally, I hear this, and I just kind of get a little, little tense and a little worried. I'm a planner. I'm, I, I like to think through things. I like to kind of set a vision and just go for it. And because of that, when I hear this and I want to see the faithfulness of Paul, I have to ask myself the question, would I have heard God's voice in the midst of that? Would I have heard the Holy Spirit if he was saying the same thing to me? And I don't know if I would have. But the truth is, being attentive to the Spirit is not just something that happens. And that's what, as I was thinking more about how is Paul like this, I think it's important that we understand a little bit more about Paul. You guys have heard Malcolm Gladwell will talk about the, the 10,000 rule. When you see people who are just experts in things, when you see athletes that just seemingly on the fly do these remarkable things, or you see any people in kind of all these various professional fields do these things that on the surface for somebody who is not in that world seems incredible and off the cuff and, and unbelievable that they can do that in those moments. 
What, he, what Malcolm Gladwell talks about is that, yes, we should be amazed by that. It's okay, but we shouldn't be surprised that these people are able to do these things because they've spent their life practicing this stuff. They have spent their life doing these things over and over and over and over again. Mastery in these things takes time. And I want to say that it's the same with Paul. This is not just something that happened to Paul. This is not something new age. This isn't something where you can all of a sudden just say, okay, I'm going to listen to the Spirit. I'm going to do that. This is something that Paul, over years and years of his life, has practiced. He made a regular habit of reading the Scriptures, praying through the Scriptures, listening, being attentive, resting, living within community. Paul was trained as a rabbi growing up and then became a Christian. And at this point in time, has probably been in that world for 15 to 20 years. Paul is a seasoned saint who has practiced the art of being attentive to the Holy Spirit. So when we look at this and we see the power and the importance of being attentive to the Holy Spirit, we have to remember that that takes practice over time. That is not something that happens overnight. The second is that it happens through the practice of rest and just focused, intentional listening. For Paul, who has spent his entire life practicing the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath day holy, of no matter what you're doing, from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown, you stop working. You just stop doing it. And you spend time praying and reflecting and reminding yourself that you are not in charge, that God is. He had had a habit of doing that. And in those moments, God can speak to him. He can hear the voice of God because there's space. I think that's probably the hardest part for me and probably for this culture is that we have so little room for rest. We have so little room to actually hear when God is saying something, when God is moving, when God is speaking through our circumstances. We can't hear him because we don't take the time to listen. Mark Labberton writes this. He says, a life that worships and does justice starts with rest. Scripture's call to seek justice surely involves action, considerable and costly. But a life that does justice rises out of worship, which starts with rest, is sustained by rest, and returns to rest. T.S. Eliot, who's uh, my favorite poet, wrote a poem called The Hippopotamus, which is a weird poem. Um, and he uses a hippopotamus as a way to describe the church, which is even more strange. Um, but there's a line in there that I just love and I come back to all the time, and it's about this. He says, the hippopotamus's day is passed in sleep. At night, he hunts. God works in a mysterious way. The church can sleep and feed at once. We see this regularly happen. And this is the way God has it. That it's in these moments of rest where we are coming together whether it's here on Sunday mornings when we're gathered together, taking time out of our busy days to just rest in God. Whether that's kind of the regular practice, however we do that, it's in those moments. And because Paul did this regularly, he is attentive to the Spirit. The last is recognizing that God moves through the naturally supernatural, is something we call it. So one interesting thing to note here, uh, if you'll notice... The pronouns, and I love noticing pronouns. That's kind of my nerdy side. 
If you notice the, in the pronouns of this passage, the pronouns shift from they and them to we and us, which, we, which makes us know that Luke, who's the author of this book, joins them at some point in time in between verses 6 and verses 10, because that's where the shift happens. Probably when they were in Troas, were about to launch out to Philippi. And a lot of scholars say, point this out and kind of say the reason why Paul was probably kept from Asia or kept from Bithynia, these other places that they wanted to go, was because he was sick. Although he recognized that the Holy Spirit was keeping him from, that, that this was a spiritual thing, it was from a surface level on what it manifests in real life is that he was sick and that he needed a doctor. Luke is a physician. So Luke came and joined him. And this is, this is, yes, this is kind of reading something into the text that is not made explicit. But a lot of scholars kind of say this is a likely scenario, which had happened. I think oftentimes we think that God's calling or God's movement is a lot more spiritual than it actually is, if, you, if that makes any sense. That God works through our natural circumstances to do supernatural things, to call us supernaturally towards things. He works through the naturally supernatural. But being attentive to that it is the Spirit working through those things is a practice that we need to develop over time. Because I don't know if I would have done this. I don't know if I would have gone to Macedonia. I would have just probably taken a Tylenol and pushed through it. The next one we see, not only being attentive to the Spirit, but the next kind of small takeaway that we see is that we should be prepared to suffer, but suffer wisely for the gospel. Be prepared to suffer, but suffer wisely for the gospel. Paul and Silas and the rest of his crew are beaten with rods. They are thrown in jail. They suffer through an earthquake. They stay in jail after an earthquake. Yet when the jailer comes and says, no, you guys can go aside, Paul doesn't roll over. He says, no, no, no. That's not the way this is going to happen. You guys punished me, uncondemned, and threw me in prison as a Roman citizen without a trial. If they're going to do this, they're going to have to come themselves and take me out. I always thought it was interesting because you'd think that at that moment they would just be like, okay, that's fine. We'll let bygones be bygones. But Paul doesn't do that. When Paul suffers and when we see him suffer, they suffer for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of loving their neighbor. That is why they choose to suffer. They suffer for the sake of the gospel moving forward and for the sake of loving their neighbor. Not because they're foolish and not because they're passive. One of the things we will see over and over again is, that, is the wisdom that Paul shows in the story. And in many stories that he is wise. He uses, this is not the first time he uses his Roman citizenship to his advantage. And it's not because he wants the gospel to not be advanced. It's not cowardice that he uses it. But he doesn't feel like it's a calling to suffer foolishly. And he's also not passive. That's the other thing you need to see about Paul. He does not roll over. He is not a pushover by any means. He would probably at times be hard to work with. (laughs) Something to note about Paul. And that doesn't take away from any of the work that God does through him. See, I, I, think, I think oftentimes 
we feel like our suffering is, is caused by kind of the need for suffering for Christ, which oftentimes it is. But we got to be honest that sometimes it's because we're acting like an idiot. Okay, so that's another way of putting this. Be prepared to suffer, but don't be an idiot, okay? Be wise. Don't just be passive and roll over. Be wise. Don't be an idiot. We, want, we can make a t-shirt out of that. Frank loves to say that. We can make a t-shirt out of it. But this is something that we need to know. There is nobody except for Jesus who suffers more for the sake of the calling than Paul. This is the first of many beatings that he will receive. He will be stoned within an inch of his life over and over again. He will be shipwrecked. He will be all of these things. And ultimately, his life ends by being beheaded in Rome. That is this man whom we're talking about. But none of this he suffers for the sake of being foolish or for the sake of being a, a pushover. He suffers for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of loving his neighbor. And that's something that's important to note, that there is a difference. I'll hear people talk about this, and, and sadly, usually my, my response is, I don't think that's because of Christ. Don't, you don't need to bring him into this. You're just being an idiot. So stop being an idiot. It's good advice. You can take that however you'd like. The last thing that we need to see in this, and this is really, although, this is really where I want us to walk away, what I want us to walk away with. More than anything else, what we need to see in this passage is that the gospel meets you at your deepest need. The gospel meets you at your deepest need. And this we see really three distinct stories of the power of the gospel setting free somebody in this story. We first see it with Lydia. Lydia is a wealthy, working woman, a patriarch of her family, or a matriarch of her family, a very well-respected woman in the community who fears God. And her, but her deepest need was for the Holy Spirit to open up her eyes as to how those things connected with Jesus. That was her deepest need. And God, in that moment, meets her deepest need through the work of Paul. It's the same gospel that meets her deepest need there. Next, we go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. A girl who is a slave, who is not only oppressed by this kind of demon that's in her, but oppressed by people who are making money off of her. She is oppressed in all counts. And the power of the gospel, even though he works through Paul being annoyed, sets this little girl free from her bondage, from her oppression, from the yoke of slavery. He sets her free. God meets her at her deepest need, and that was freedom. The last, we see the Philippian jailer. And once again, we see the gospel meet this man at his darkest moment. We see him meet him in his deepest wound, where he is facing death because of a failure that he at least thought he did. And in that moment, God gives him life, God gives him hope, and God saves his soul. He meets him at his deepest need. This is the same good news all throughout it. It's the same God, but he can meet everybody at their deepest need in all sorts of circumstances. The gospel is consistent, but it is contextual. And that is good news for us. 
This good news that God sent Jesus into the world to fulfill the law, to pay the punishment for sin, to defeat death and the resurrection, offer forgiveness and mercy to all people is good news for all and meets all of us where we most deeply need it. Some of us, our most deepest, our deepest need or our deepest wound is that we just grew up with bad parents. For those, God is the good father. For some of it is the wounded past. And for those, God is the healer. Some of us have a restless heart. For those, Jesus is the true king. For those oppressed, Jesus came to set the captives free. For those with privilege, he meets us with a life-giving conviction of our responsibility to our neighbors. For the underprivileged, he steps into our shoes and walks alongside of us. For the foolish, he gives wisdom. For the learned, he gives humility. For every single need, for every single wound, for every single hurt, for every single thing we have, God meets it. He meets it right there. That is the power of the gospel, that he is meeting you where you need it. And that is good news for us. And not just for those of us who have never believed in him. This is good news for all of us. Tim Keller says this in his book, or in his article, Centrality of the Gospel. He says, the, God, the gospel is not easily comprehended. Paul says that the gospel only does its renewing work in us as we understand it in all its truth. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not get it. So the key to spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. For some of you here, you might just be at that point where you are just in despair, where you just need hope. And your question might be, what must I do to be saved? And if that's where you're at, if that's where you are this morning, believe in the power of Jesus and what he can do in your life. He can save you. He can redeem you. He can forgive you. He can give you mercy even if you don't feel like you need it. Some of us might have already done that. But that doesn't mean this is any less powerful and any less important. We all are trying to fill our needs elsewhere. We are all trying to heal our wounds through other things. Let Jesus heal you. Let Jesus meet you where you need him. Let him set you free. This is true for all of us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you, God, that the power of the good news of what you have done on our behalf, Lord, saving us and redeeming us, Lord, bringing us just through faith into your family. God, I pray that that would move us, Lord that we would remember that we are not, God, separated from you because of anything other than a lack of belief. Lord, I pray that we would believe this morning, Lord. For those of us who have never believed, Lord, that we would turn to you now and receive your salvation. And God, for those of us who do believe, but Lord, have forgotten that you are the God who meets our deepest need. God, I pray, Lord, that we would allow you to we would turn to you, God, and seek you. Lord, we pray that as we continue 
in our worship, Lord, as we continue to remind ourselves through communion, Lord, remind ourselves through singing and prayer, Lord, that you are our king and you have sent us into this world to proclaim the goodness of what you've done. Lord, I pray that you continue to move in power in the midst of your people. We pray this in your name. Amen.